The president's son, Hunter Biden, has been indicted on nine federal tax charges, the result of a special counsel investigation. It's Friday, December 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Texas judge gives a woman permission to get an abortion despite the state's ban. Also in Hong Kong, critics of the Chinese Communist Party fear they're being targeted by Beijing. They all have this uncanny flavor of total control, this instilling fear in people. That, I think, is their goal. And this hour. We weren't sure what was going to happen. And what we saw is that our community immediately fell in love with this ability to connect with this special place. After a successful debut last year, a large art installation celebrating the solstice returns to Mount Auburn Cemetery. Increasing clouds in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A U.S. national security official says Washington has not given Israel a deadline for wrapping up major combat operations, but has criticized the scale of civi- rather civilian casualties in Gaza. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports. U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer suggested in a public forum that the Americans were not issuing any ultimatums. So no, we have not given a a firm deadline uh, to Israel, not really our role, this is their conflict. That said, uh, you know, we do have influence, uh, even if we don't have ultimate control. Finer did say that Israel's operations in the North, quote, did not show sufficient care for civilian life. Israel's campaign to destroy Hamas has killed more than 17,000 people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Israel says Hamas killed 1,200 people during its attack in early October. Frank Langford, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The U.S. Embassy in Iraq's capital says it has been attacked by rockets. No casualties have been reported. No one has claimed responsibility. But there have been dozens of attacks on U.S. forces at military bases in Iraq and Syria since the Israel-Hamas war started. The latest numbers on employment in the U.S. are due out this morning from the Labor Department. NPR Scott Horsley reports they're expected to reflect an uptick in hiring in November after a slowdown in job growth in October. Forecasters think U.S. employers added somewhere around 200,000 jobs in November, up from 150,000 the month before. Tens of thousands of auto workers and screen actors who had been on strike in October are now mostly back at work. That said, there are signs the job market is gradually cooling from last year's frenzied pace. The number of job openings was down at the end of October, but layoffs are still rare, and the unemployment rate's been under 4% for almost two years. The Federal Reserve will be keeping an eye on wage gains as it tries to bring inflation under control. Wages have risen faster than prices in recent months, so workers' paychecks stretch further. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A Texas judge has approved a woman's request for an emergency abortion. She made the request after learning her fetus has a fatal condition and that her own health is at risk. Texas bans nearly all abortions. And Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says if the woman gets the abortion, he can still prosecute her doctor. The woman's lawyer, Mark Heron, says Paxton is now threatening physicians. This is exactly why doctors across the state of Texas are terrified of providing essential health care to their patients because now suddenly Ken Paxton is going to come along and second-guess their decisions. He spoke to CNN. Russian state media report that President Vladimir Putin will run for re-election next March. Another six-year term would keep Putin in office until at least 2030. The Kremlin claims Putin is getting a lot of support from Russians. This 
is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. U.S. House lawmakers will investigate Harvard and MIT for their response to allegations of anti-Semitism on campus. The House Committee on Education and Workforce will lead the inquiry. Earlier this week, the college presidents testified before that committee on the same issue. In announcing the inquiry, committee members criticized the school heads for their responses during the hearing as inadequate. Massachusetts officials plan to close the Overflow Family Shelter site in the state transportation building. That site in downtown Boston was set up three weeks ago for families who were on the wait list for the state family shelter system. Officials say the families will transition to a site in Quincy, although that site is full. More than 100 families are on the shelter wait list, which was implemented nearly a month ago. Governor Healy is doubling down on her pledge to remove all the slow zones on the T by the end of next year. WBUR's Walter Wethman reports that promise comes after some major work to speed up the commute on the Green Line. T officials say the recent track closures allowed them to lift 12 speed restrictions, two more than they expected. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang plans to keep staggering track closures to clear the remaining 168 slow zones. Speaking to WBUR's Radio Boston, Governor Healy said she has full confidence in the strategy. So that's why Phil Ang was asked to come up with a plan to eliminate slow zones. He came up with a plan. They will be eliminated within a year. The next closure will be on the D branch of the Green Line between Riverside Station and Kenmore. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A heads up that that closure of the D branch will begin on Monday. Buses will replace trains through December 20th. Vineyard Wind plans to power up its first offshore wind turbines off the New England coast by the end of the month. As Jeanette Barnes reports, that's just three weeks away. Vineyard Wind has long pledged to deliver electricity by the end of 2023, with however many turbines are ready. Now the company says that number is five out of 62 total. Ken Kimmel of parent company Avangrid Renewables says some testing still needs to be done. I can't give you the exact date. There's still some things, some steps that need to be taken, but we are looking good at getting those powered up by the end of the year. A new round of bids are due in January for Massachusetts' largest wind procurement yet, enough to provide one quarter of the state's demand. Multi-state bids will be considered for the first time following Governor Healy's agreement to work with Connecticut and Rhode Island. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jeanette Barnes. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. The Patriots snapped their five-game losing streak last night. They beat the Steelers 21-18 in Pittsburgh. The Pats will host the Kansas City Chiefs next weekend. The Bruins' offense was quiet last night. They lost to the Buffalo Sabres 3-1 at the Garden. The Bees will host the Arizona Coyotes tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Celtics and the New York Knicks. Increasing clouds today. It'll be in the lower 40s, partly cloudy overnight with a low around 30, mostly cloudy tomorrow and in the lower 50s, cloudy with a chance for showers on Sunday with a high in the lower 60s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Hunter Biden is facing new criminal charges. The president's son was indicted last night. Justice Department Special Counsel David Weiss brought this case, part of his investigation into Hunter Biden and his business activities. This second indictment of Joe Biden's son comes in December, just before an election year. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering this and is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. What specific charges is Hunter Biden facing with this indictment? Well, this is a a nine-count indictment. It was handed up uh, by a federal grand jury in the Central District of California. The charges are related to tax years 2016 through 2019. Three of the counts that Hunter Biden is facing here are felony tax counts, one for tax evasion, uh, two for filing a false return. The other six counts are misdemeanors, and those are for failing to pay his taxes and failing to file his taxes. Okay, so this all relates to the 2016 through the 2019 time period. What does the special counsel say that Hunter Biden was doing Well, prosecutors say that over four years, uh, Hunter engaged in a a scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in taxes that he owed. Uh, It also says that he evaded paying taxes for 2018. Now, the indictment says that between 2016 and 2020, Hunter made more than $7 million in total gross income. The indictment references business dealings in Ukraine, business dealings related to connections in Romania and China. Uh, It says that Hunter got another $1.2 million in financial support. But prosecutors say that Hunter spent his money on drugs, on escorts and girlfriends, on luxury hotels, exotic cars, among other things. Prosecutors say, in short, that Hunter Biden spent his money on his extravagant lifestyle, not on his taxes. And so I guess they're saying that he willfully didn't pay his taxes. That's right. Although he had the money. to. Okay. So this is the second set of charges the special counsels brought against Hunter Biden. Can you just remind us about the others? Right. He was indicted this summer on federal gun charges as part of the special counsel's investigation. Those charges came about after a tentative plea deal that Biden had agreed to in Delaware fell apart. He'd agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges there. That whole deal unraveled. He was later charged on the gun counts. He's pleaded not guilty to those. After that deal fell apart, we knew that there was a possibility that he would get hit with federal tax charges. uh, And of course, he now has. Has there been any response from Hunter Biden or his attorneys to this new indictment? Right. His attorney, Abby Lowell, said in a statement last night that if Hunter's name was anything other than Biden, that none of these charges, not the gun charges or the new tax charges, would have been brought against him. Lowell accused the special counsel of, in essence, folding under Republican pressure to go after Hunter. And he said that Weiss had investigated all of this for five years without bringing charges. And now with no new evidence, he's brought these nine charges uh, after agreeing a few months ago to resolve all of this with misdemeanors uh, in that plea deal that ultimately collapsed. Uh, He also said that Hunter Biden paid his taxes in full two years ago. Seems remarkable that the president's son is now facing two federal indictments, but also the Republican frontrunner in the 2024 presidential campaign. And not to forget, the House Republicans have made Hunter a focus of their impeachment inquiry into President Biden as well. But yes, as you said, the situation is extraordinary. Two federal indictments that Trump is facing, of course, are for trying to overturn the 2020 election results, for mishandling classified documents. Hunter's, as we've said, are for gun and tax charges. But what we have now is the possibility of these cases all grinding through the justice system in the middle of the 2024 presidential campaign. That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thank you. Thank you.
We had a visitor in our studios yesterday, a woman exiled from her home country. Svetlana Tikhonovskaya is an opposition leader from Belarus who says she was rightfully elected president in 2020. Now, if you look on the map, you see Belarus in Eastern Europe. It's right next to Ukraine and also right next to Russia, which once ruled it directly and still exercises great influence through its leader, Alexander Lukashenko. Russian troops even used Belarus as a launching point for part of their invasion of Ukraine. Tikhonovskaya, the exiled leader, says Lukashenko should not be in charge at all. Her husband was an opposition leader until the government jailed him, so she ran for president instead, only to have the government say she lost big and force her to flee to Lithuania. She's now been standing up a government in exile, complete with a cabinet, and she came here to Washington to confer with allies in the U.S. government. So we have two-sided strategy mm-hmm. uh, uh, towards Belarus. We need political isolation uh, of Lukashenko's regime and uh, closing loopholes in existing sanctions and more uh, economic sanctions on uh, this regime. But on the other hand, we need more assistance to democratic society, to democratic movement, to our media who have to counter propaganda. And we are not asking, you know, to fight instead of us. We just need constant communication with the USA as the most important strategic uh, ally to Belarus. But also what's important is the future of our country. Of course, we realize that future of Belarus and Ukraine are connected because we are facing the same enemy. But if in Ukraine, Russia is fighting with tanks and uh, missiles, in Belarus, they are interfering in uh, Belarusian life, in economy, in uh, education, in military sphere, in media, so on and so forth. So it's like silent war at the moment. But we have to be sure that after, I don't know, negotiations uh, mm-hmm. about Russian-Ukrainian war starts, Belarus will not be abandoned. Belarus will not be given as consolation prize. Okay, you also mentioned strengthening democratic movements, uh, things like a free press. Do you hope to spur protests or an uprising within Belarus itself? Of course, you know, their task to return Belarus to people and to hold free and fair elections, it's uh, uh, on Belarusian people, for sure. And uh, when the new wind of opportunity comes to Belarus, believe me, millions of people will be again on the streets. Now, it's impossible. Of course, I, 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 I believe that people want to see beautiful rallies on the streets, you know, it means uprising is there. But when you realize that every day in Belarus, 15, uh, 20 people are being detained every day without any um, exceptions, you know, you understand the level of repressions. We live like in Stalin's time and we have to keep people safe when will be the next trigger for people to be united Ah, on the streets You don't want people to come out and protest at a time when they would fail and simply be arrested or killed. So you are in the process, it seems, of standing up a government in exile. You have a cabinet, is that right? And now you want to put out passports and in the name of that government. Yeah, but it's uh, like uh, we are overcoming challenges that are ahead of us. You know, we didn't think about this passport until uh, Lukashenko decided to put revenge on those whom he can't reach because they live in exile. He wanted to, uh, like, restrict uh, our rights even there. So it's just a challenge. But, of course, we are building uh, democratic institutions in exile. We have proto-government. We have proto-parliament because we have to study democracy. Yes, in exile at the moment, we have to explain people uh, how democracy works, that uh, you don't have to rely on one person who tells you how to live and what to do. You have to take responsibility yourselves. It's much more difficult. 
Have you heard from your husband lately? You know, there was a tendency in the Belarusian uh, regime prisons to keep people in incommunicado mode. Mm -hmm. Incommunicado is a type of torturing. And my husband is kept in incommunicado mode. Since March this year, I haven't heard anything about him. He was detained back in May 2020, but from March, I don't know if he's alive. And uh, it is done, first of all, to break people inside prisons, mm -hmm. you know, to persuade them that uh, Belarusians forgot about them. Look, Louis are not coming. Nobody write letters to you. So you sacrifice in vain, you know, and uh, just to, to break psychologically. Because mm -hmm. it's a huge burden on shoulders of relatives, of course. It's uh, so exhausting when you don't know what's going on with your beloved. Uh, but, uh, you know, I hope that they know that we continue to fight. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, thank you so much. Thank you. When voters in New Hampshire look at their presidential primary ballots this January, they're going to see a lot of options, and not just the candidates you've already heard of. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith was in Manchester last night for what is called the Lesser Known Candidate Forum. Richard Rist is a business owner from Maryland, frustrated with how divided the nation has become. His solution? Run for president. Because why not? Do you see a clear path? No. No, I'd be lying if I said that. Do I hold out the possibility that I could grab some traction? Yeah, I do. He was wearing a Navy sport coat and a floral tie. His adult son was there to support him. But when Rist turned to take his seat on stage, he suddenly realized he was going to be sandwiched between a man wearing a big black rubber boot on his head and a candidate named Paperboy Love Prince, whose outfit evoked a wish-granting genie. Oh my gosh, I have to go see who's sitting next to me. 20 presidential candidates came out to share their ideas. They ranged from deeply earnest, like Donald Picard from Cambridge, Massachusetts. When I began this rather quixotic journey a few months ago, I had as a stretch goal that I would be participating in a presidential debate. And here I am. <laughs> wow. To what one hopes was performance art. Vermin Supreme will take away your guns and give you better ones. <laughs> and these better okay. guns will shoot marshmallows, but they will still be lethal. That was the perennial candidate, Vermin Supreme, known for the booty wears on his head. In a lot of states, it's really hard to get on the ballot. In New Hampshire, there's a $1,000 filing fee, and anyone can run, including Republican Peter Jettick, a firefighter from Cleveland. You can actually run for president here. That's why we have all these people. He's trying to get attention for his ideas, moving the government out of Washington, D.C., and dealing with the debt. But he also has the kind of optimism that even some better-known candidates are fueled by. Well, I'm not going to be Trump. But I think I can move up there with, like, Nikki Haley and uh, those guys, you know. When it was all over, Richard Rist had answered questions about gun control and the conflict in the Middle East and also promised that a vote for him would prevent the zombie apocalypse. He declared the evening a success, because if people were looking at the colorful candidates on either side of him, and they were, then they were looking at him, too. Tamara Keith, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for starting your Friday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a pregnant woman whose fetus has a condition that is almost always fatal has won permission to get an abortion in Texas in the first legal challenge of its kind to state abortion bans. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit BU.edu slash met. A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold and get a drink of water? I'm Elsa Chang, why Texans are pushing for federal standards that protect workers from the heat on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Clouds move in throughout the day today. We'll have a high in the low 40s. The clouds stick around tonight, and it falls to around 30. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 50s. Sunday, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 60s. And a good chance of rain beginning in the late afternoon. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. There's a new psychological thriller on Netflix today, and here's how it starts. A white family leaves New York City for a short vacation. Mother, father, two kids. They rent a gorgeous house near the beach. Suddenly the cable goes out, and there's smartphones. No information coming in, going out. Then, in the middle of the night, a black father and daughter come to the door. They say it's their house, and they want to stay there. This really doesn't seem like their house. I don't know, just all feels like a con to me. And they want to stay here with us? Forget it. I wouldn't be able to sleep with strangers in the house. Rose is right down the hall. What if he sneaks in? I don't want to think about it. That's Julia Roberts playing a quintessential Karen in the new film, Leave the World Behind. How these people navigate each other while the outside world seems to be under attack drives the tension. Mahershala Ali plays the wealthy, debonair homeowner, G.H. Scott, and Ethan Hawke plays Julia Roberts' spineless husband, Clay. What's always so interesting about reading history is the people that experience these traumatic events, they just don't have all the information. They don't know that it's the beginning of World War II. They don't know it's September 11th. And so when we look back, we say, how come they didn't do this? Or how come they didn't do that? It's because they didn't know. They just thought it was Tuesday, you know? There's just something terrifying in just really sitting with the unknown and not having enough information and sort of 
guessing at what is out there. And so I think those things sort of add something to the energy and the dynamic. To give listeners some perspective here, I mean, it starts, as you say, Ethan, nobody knows what's going on. And then late at night, two people come to the door. And Mahershala, that's your character, G.H. Scott, and his daughter. I understand how strange this must be for you, us turning up like this unannounced. We'd have called, you see, but uh, the phones are out. Yeah, my, uh, my phone doesn't seem to have service. It's almost as if we're telling the truth. You navigate it so differently than your character's daughter. Right. If you could talk about that generational divide here as you realize you have to live in this house with this family in what could be an end-of-the-world scenario. Wow. Having been partially raised by my grandparents, she would tell me, be very conscious of speaking out about things. Like, she would drill it into me because she had so much fear around her own experiences. So looking at Mahala and her sort of age group, there's just a different approach to how they operate in the world. The things that we were sort of accepting of, there just was not going to be a black president. So don't ever expect that. Yeah. Mahala is of the generation where Barack Obama's president. Yeah. So there's a, there's a whole different set of expectations. And I'm very appreciative of this generation for their unwillingness to, to sort of bite their tongue. So you have these two families coexisting in this one house, suspicious of each other, and things are going really wrong outside. Oil tankers running ashore, planes falling out of the sky. I mean, you start to watch the characters reveal themselves in times of crisis, right? And there's a scene, Ethan, where you're driving out, trying to, I think, go to the store. You're in the middle of nowhere, panicked, and you roll down your window and there's a woman there begging for help, um, only speaks Spanish. I don't understand what you're saying. I don't, I don't speak, um, I don't speak Spanish. And you seem kind of paralyzed, but you ultimately roll up your window and drive away. I remember when I got the script, and I got to that scene and I was like, I'm not doing this movie. <laughs> it, 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 it upset me so much. Yeah. You know, the, the metaphor of the affluent white American male who really thinks he's a great person. And he, Clay really believes he has a good heart. And I believe he does have a good heart. But the fear overtakes him. And he's not the person he wants to be. And he drives by somebody less fortunate and prioritizes his own family and his own life. That's when the movie's working at its finest, I think, is, yeah. is you know, we, we all live, there's fault lines, you know, and America has mm. terrible, terrible fault lines. And in periods of crisis, those fault lines get exposed. I mean, not to make this about me, but I've covered a lot of conflict and I recognize all of it in the way that people yeah. turn into the biggest monsters or the biggest heroes in these yeah. moments you have to make choices about how to survive, how to live. Crisis reveals character, right? Yeah. The director of the film, Sam Ismail, he also brought us Mr. Robot in that series, this film. They have a shared worldview, technology being at the center and our reliance on technology. And and Ethan, your character, I never related more than this moment. I'm going to play this clip. Uh Uh-oh. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do right now. I can barely do anything without my cell phone and my GPS. I am a useless man. 
so well played. So, uh, I lost my phone once and I didn't yes. leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> is there a bigger commentary here, though? I mean, is it also a commentary on how much we don't know how to do now that we depend on tech for everything? Uh, yeah, we kind of live in a prison of convenience. You know, I think the yeah. more convenient things have gotten for us, the more... I don't want to say the dumber we become, but there's there's skill sets that just begin to atrophy. We were, I think Ethan and I and everybody, we were talking about phone numbers the other day at least. Mm -hmm. And and I remember thinking like, I know one number. I, I know my wife's phone number at this point. It's a little bit of a wake up call just to remind you not to be asleep. You know, there's there's a lot of ways in which all of us can help be a part of a solution and there's ways that we can bury our head in the sand i do think our technology has put us to sleep it's shrinking us as people and one of the blessings in technology is that we are more connected yeah. that the world is smaller and so there is an opportunity for us to be on the same page with certain things mm. um however hard that might be but i, I do believe that it, the film is very much a wake-up call around our relationship with technology and just our relationship to hum humanity and in how we treat one another. That's Mahershala Ali and Ethan Hawke, two of the stars of the new film, Leave the World Behind, and you can find that on Netflix. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. All right. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, an experimental art installation celebrating the solstice is returning to Mount Auburn Cemetery this weekend as a new holiday tradition. It's 7.29. Climate Climate change is urgent and existential, but it's not hopeless. Every day this week on 90.9 WBUR, the science, business, and stakes of carbon capture. Listen again today at noon on the radio and the WBUR app. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N. Security Council is expected to vote today on a resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Ahead of the vote, the U.N.'s Secretary General is expected to brief council members on the deteriorating conditions for Palestinian civilians as Israel expands the fighting against Hamas. The University of Pennsylvania's Board of Trustees gathered yesterday to discuss comments made by the school's president during a congressional hearing on campus anti-Semitism amid the war between Israel and Hamas. Liz McGill was evasive when asked whether calling for the genocide of Jews would violate the university's code of conduct. The presidents of Harvard and MIT have also been criticized for their responses. NPR's Tobia Smith says a congressional committee plans to investigate further. The blowback has really just continued to intensify since they were grilled on whether students' calls for genocide would violate campus rules. And their answers ranged from maybe to long-winded lawyer-like uh, dodges that and uh, prompted outrage from a broad array of very strange bedfellows, from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who was firing the questions, to Elon Musk, who called the answers shameful, and Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, who questioned the university president's ability 
ability to lead. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Healy is nominating the current state solicitor to the state's highest court. Elizabeth Dewar is Healy's first nominee to the Supreme Judicial Court. The position is currently held by Elspeth Seifer. She'll retire next month. Dewar has served as state solicitor since 2016. Members of Massachusetts's all-Democratic congressional delegation are pushing for more money for home heating assistance. Representatives Lori Trahan and Jim McGovern are leading a request for more than $1.5 billion in funding for the Low-Income Home Energy Assistance Program. Homeowners and renters are eligible for the funds. Massachusetts recently received over $130 million in that funding. Harvard professor Claudia Golden is in Sweden to receive her Nobel Prize. She won the economics prize for her research that found large gaps in pay and levels of employment still exist for women in the workforce. What this award has meant to me personally is a lot, but it also has been magnified many, 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 many times over by the fact that it means a lot to many other people. And of course, more than 50% of the world's population are women. Golden said she hopes that in the future, more women will continue to go into the field of economics and become Nobel laureates. She's only the third woman to win the economics prize and the first to win it alone. It's 733. WBUR supporters include endless energy, hot water heater replacements, and same-day or next-day services. Learn how you can heat smart this winter. GoEndlessEnergy.com. The Patriots beat the Steelers 21-18 last night in Pittsburgh. It was their first win in six games. The Bruins lost to the Buffalo Sabres last night 3-1 at the Garden. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the New York Knicks. It'll slowly grow overcast today. Highs will be in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight, and it'll be partly cloudy. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, but we warm up to highs in the low 50s. Another warm-up on Sunday to highs in the low 60s. It'll be mostly cloudy again and showers are likely beginning in late afternoon. It's 30 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A Texas judge yesterday granted a pregnant woman a temporary restraining order that would allow her to seek an abortion. This is part of a challenge to one of the state abortion bans made possible since a U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year. The Center for Reproductive Rights filed suit on behalf of a Dallas-area woman who discovered her fetus had a condition that is almost always fatal. Let's discuss this with Olivia Aldridge, who covers health care for our member station KUT in Austin. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so what is this case and who is the person at the center of it? Yeah, this is Cox versus Texas. And in the order issued by Judge Maya Gamble, a temporary restraining order 
Um, she not only allowed the woman at the center of this case, Kate Cox, to get an abortion, but also said that a specific doctor, and that's Dr. Damla Carson, can give her that abortion. That's significant because doctors are liable under Texas abortion laws. If they're found in violation, they can face significant jail time and fines such that many doctors just say they aren't willing to risk doing this procedure, even if they believe the pregnancy is putting the person's health in danger. Okay, so the doctor has been named as someone who is cleared, at least by the judge, to do this. What does the order mean for the woman seeking the abortion, Kate Cox? Well, the judge's order is temporary. It expires on December 21st. Um, She's a 31-year-old mother of two, and she said part of her reason for seeking an abortion was to protect her ability to carry another pregnancy. Um, You know, as, as we noted, her fetus has a really devastating diagnosis, and doctors have said that delivery could hurt her ability to have another child. But as for, you know, specific plans for moving forward with an abortion, she and her lawyers aren't sharing any specific information right now just because of safety concerns. Okay, so this is a ruling by a judge. But of course, in Texas, there is also an elected attorney general, Republican Ken Paxton, who has championed uh, these abortion bans. How is he responding? Well, with this kind of temporary restraining order, Paxton can't immediately appeal. Uh, He did send a letter addressed to three hospitals in Houston where Dr. Carson has privileges and basically warned those facilities that they can still be liable if they facilitate this abortion happening. Uh, Now, Mark Heeren, who's senior counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights, called that fear-mongering and just a misrepresentation of the order. But, you know, Paxton's letter may have a, a chilling effect on hospitals and doctors. This is the first case of its kind in Texas since abortion was banned. So we kind of have to wait and see how it plays out from here. Yeah. yeah, Olivia, I guess we should note how very, very specific this temporary restraining order is. It deals with one woman, one request for an abortion, and even one specific doctor. But do abortion rights advocates and opponents think there will be wider implications here? Yeah, the lawyers from the Center for Reproductive Rights, which again filed the case, say that even though this is a victory for Kate Cox, who this order applies to, it can't be the new normal in general because it often just isn't realistic for women who need emergency abortions to go through a time-consuming legal process when their health is at stake. You know, there's a ticking clock. They are hoping that doctors will get the clarity they need soon to be able to confidently give emergency abortions without fear of liability. And they hope to get that clarity between this case and another that's now before the Texas Supreme Court. You know, and as for abortion opponents, the Texas Alliance for Life said that they think this case was an attempt to use the medical exception to progressively just, quote, chisel away at Texas abortion laws. Okay, thanks for the update. That's Olivia Aldridge, who covers health care for KUT in Austin, Texas. Thank you. Thank you. A Hong Kong activist said this week that she is studying in Canada and has no intention of going back to Hong Kong, despite pressure from the Chinese government to do so. And as NPR's Emily Fang reports, the story of how she left reveals the extent of Beijing's control in Hong Kong. Now 27 years old, Agnes Chow was just a teenager when she became a leading student activist against Beijing's policies in Hong Kong. Here she is in 2019 on Sky News. I have the responsibility as part of a Hong Kongers to correctly tell the situation in Hong Kong to the international world, but not the Chinese Communist Party's version. She spent half a year in prison for protesting, and after she was released in 2021, she surrendered her passport and was questioned frequently by police. 
Once a public figure, she went quiet. Until this week, when she wrote on Instagram to say she'd been given her passport back under certain conditions. I was being forced to write a letter of repentance, and I was being forced to go to mainland China. The police had organized a tour for her to mainland China to see its economic development, and she was to return to Hong Kong and check in with them every few months. It resembled a less intense version of the patriotic education Chinese authorities do with some dissidents in the mainland and with ethnic Uyghurs in detention camps in the region of Xinjiang. It wasn't as surprising as such. This is Chris Chang, an independent Hong Kong journalist. He left after Beijing implemented a national security law outlawing dissent in the region in 2020 and now lives in London. He's done reporting on patriotic education and how it's being rolled out in Hong Kong, too. So young prisoners had to go through so-called education programs, which includes, some of them says, watching patriotic programs, some programs about the advancement of technology in mainland China. Another example is a documentary the Hong Kong police released just this week, featuring Zheng Zikin, a 22-year-old protester who had been shot by police during anti-government protests in 2019. He is serving a nearly four-year prison stint for rioting. In the documentary, Zheng says he was goaded on to protest by an atmosphere of lawlessness. Critics of the documentary say Zheng could have been coerced into saying this, reminiscent of the forced confessions China has taped from political prisoners, including that of a Hong Kong book publisher named Gui Minghai, taken from his home in Thailand and later imprisoned in China on national security charges. They all have this uncanny flavor of total control. This is Magnus Fiscusio, an anthropology professor at Cornell University and a friend of Gui, the publisher. It's instilling fear in people. That, I think, is their goal. And it's working. Hong Kongers now fear a respected Hong Kong journalist missing in Beijing could be detained. Colleagues and friends raised the alarm this month, saying that Minnie Chan with the English-language South China Morning Post has been unreachable since October after attending a Beijing defense conference. The paper said this week Chan was on personal leave in Beijing to handle a private matter. But given Beijing's history of disappearing and silencing mainland critics, the fear is that may be happening at scale in Hong Kong as well. Emily Fang, Pure News, Taipei, Taiwan. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Emerson Colonial Theater. With Just For Us, Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston, direct from Broadway, December 15th through 17th, emersoncolonialtheater.com. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. And the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBWAR's Morning Edition, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic talks about why the magazine dedicated a whole issue to the potential dangers of a second term for former President Donald Trump.
Increasing clouds and low 40s today, partly cloudy and around 30 tonight, mostly cloudy and low 50s tomorrow, still mostly cloudy on Sunday and in the low 60s. Showers are likely beginning in the late afternoon. It's 30 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA Newly released federal funds will help support Latinx businesses in Massachusetts. The $400,000 will expand the small business program run by local nonprofit Amplify Latinx. Anita Roman is the group's president and CEO. She says the program began as a lifeline to help businesses survive the pandemic. And at this point, it's more about thriving. It's about, you know, making sure that our businesses are growing, are scaling, they're uh, getting access to capital, they receive procurement opportunities and all that. And so we're really excited that we can continue growing and building this program. Roman says the organization has already served some 400 small businesses. The new funding will allow the group to expand to 40 other companies. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A large-scale, luminescent art installation that debuted last year is returning this weekend to its unique venue. Solstice Reflections on Winter Light attracted more than 8,000 visitors to Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge last year. Now, what started as an experiment has been dubbed a holiday tradition. WB Wars' Andrea Shea went to the cemetery to find out more. It might be hard to picture an immersive art experience unfolding at night in a cemetery. Cemeteries are stigmatized. I've had people tell me I would never go to a cemetery unless I had to. Matthew Stevens is president and CEO of Mount Auburn Cemetery. And there's a special moment that we're sort of using to take people deeper into the experience. To do that, a small army of artists, technicians, and staff have been buzzing around the cemetery to transform its wooded landscapes and interior spaces into solstice. Stephen says last year, the walkable, contemplative concept was definitely an experiment. We weren't sure what was going to happen. No cemetery has ever tried something like this. Are people going to be into it? Are people going to think it's like hokey? And what we saw is that our community immediately fell in love with this ability to connect with this special place in a way that has never happened before. In 1831, this place became the country's first manicured garden cemetery. Mount Auburn's beauty changed the way places of rest, which could be seen as sad or creepy, were designed and perceived. Now people flock here to pay respect to its 100,000 buried residents or just to meander through Mount Auburn's 175 acres, during the day. But with solstice, they're allowed in after the sun sets. 
as soon as you step into this landscape, you really can understand the sensitivity, the spirit, and how special this place is. Solstice creative director Sam Okerstrom-Lang walks over to one of the three glowing outdoor artworks called Eclipse. It's enveloped in mist and looks like it's floating just above the ground. So it's a pure circle with darkness in the middle with an elegant, sharp ring of light around it. Last year, Okerstrom Lang says this otherworldly work was a fan favorite. It's an invitation to have an intimate approach to something that is so distant and cosmic. And last year, the piece sat in silence in Hazeldale, where we are now. But this year, we are introducing some sound. The solstice journey continues up a short hill, past stately trees, ornate headstones, and beautiful monuments. Through the artworks, through the walking, through finding your own path, we really are hoping that people are able to connect with themselves in a way that feels authentic, connect with others around them, to feel hopeful in a moment that is so dark. As the solstice has always been for thousands of years, this moment of reflection for people literally on the darkest day of the year, where every day forward you move a little bit towards light. Stevens says Solstice is the largest event ever produced by Mount Auburn. An orchestra of creatives make the sound, light, and performance piece happen. Okerstrom Lang's firm, Masari Studios, created kaleidoscopic animations that will be projected on Bigelow Chapel with newly commissioned music. The ornate chapel's interior will also be activated with live string musicians and the cemetery's decades-long tradition of lighting candles. Stevens says the ritual moved visitors. We saw people in tears, we saw people with smiles. Wander back down the hill and you'll encounter Phase Garden, a mind-boggling installation that features 12 light and sound towers arranged in a wide circle. Okerstrom Lang's team uses math, software, and high-tech media instruments to channel cosmic rhythms. You know, these forces that are around us that we can't necessarily like feel directly or see, and this is an attempt to funnel that down and give that offering of these beautiful things that give us life. Visitors spent hours inside Faze Garden last year, according to Stevens. When asked what he thinks Mount Auburn's founders would make of Solstice's high-tech magic, he points to one of them, Jacob Bigelow, who coined the term technology. This is back in 1831, right? He was one of the founders of MIT, and you know we sort of think you know, he would be very proud of what we're doing with the canvas he started. Solstice's canvas comes to life tomorrow night and runs through the actual solstice on December 21st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. You're with WBUR on a Friday morning, coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition. A big brother reflects on what he learned from his developmentally disabled younger brother. It's 7.50.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Exploring, understanding, and protecting our ocean starts with you. Join a team dedicated to advancing science and technology for the global good. Discover career opportunities in your field at whoi.edu team. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The president's son, Hunter Biden, is facing nine federal tax charges as a result of a special counsel investigation. House lawmakers plan to launch a formal investigation into allegations of anti-Semitism at Harvard and MIT. And Russian President Vladimir Putin plans to run for re-election next year, which would extend his rule over two decades. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Merrimack Repertory Theater with A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Charles Dickens' time in Lowell, now through December 24th. Tickets at MRT.org. Low 40s today under skies that'll grow increasingly overcast. It's 30 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Hanukkah has begun, but this year some people are having a hard time figuring out how to celebrate the Jewish holiday, given the war in Gaza and the rise in anti-Semitism. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports on how some Jewish celebrants are navigating the moment. A central Hanukkah memory for Becca Cuellar is of the menorah in her childhood home. We had like a big brick fireplace and a wooden mantle, and I just specifically remember the wax melting on that. Wax everywhere, which is so fun and beautiful. Now she's in her own apartment with a new puppy and her fiancé decorating for Hanukkah. Cuellar is opening a package of blue lights. I'm going to put them over this door frame right here. That was the discussion this morning. Do I put them over the window so we have blue light coming through our window? What do I want to look at the most? Cuellar says fears of anti-Semitism make her more reluctant this year to decorate in ways people passing by outside might see. Still, she's throwing a Hanukkah party tonight. I feel like it's more important than ever to celebrate our joy, considering all of the anti-Semitism that's happening, and we just really want to live our life as joyously as possible. Cuellar is hosting people she knows, as well as ones she met through a program organized by the group One Table and the Jewish Federation of Greater LA's Young Adult Initiative called New Roots. Chelsea Snyder runs New Roots and likens her work to the extra candle on a menorah that marks the eight nights of the holiday. The ninth prong is what we call a shamash candle, and that is the helper candle. And that's the candle you light to light the rest of the menorah. I see our role in the community as the shamash. The idea is to help younger Jews host a Sabbath dinner during Hanukkah and connect or reconnect to their faith and their community. A Jewish value that is prominent in Hanukkah is hosting and hospitality. And so we wanted to empower our community to do that, not only as a participant, but to actively do that to host others in their home. These dinners are one component of a week-long celebration with other Jewish organizations around L.A. called Infinite Light. Among them, a big party at the Peterson Automotive Museum last night and a burlesque show next week called Gelty Pleasures. Not guilty, but gelty. That's gelt as in the chocolate coins given out during the holiday. I'm a cantorial soloist currently based in Southern California, but I'm also a drag performer. Raymond Zachary is hosting the decidedly naughty cabaret. One of my drag personas, whose name is Aunt Shirley, will be the headliner and the MC for Guilty Pleasures. 
And Aunt Shirley is a 1950s housewife from Brooklyn who you never knew you wanted but somehow don't want to get rid of. And honestly, who'd want to get rid of Aunt Shirley? Well, you know, Jason, I'm really, really looking forward to um, being able to judge everybody on their latke recipes who thinks they're better than mine. But it's cute that they still try. Do you know how hard it is to keep this PG? Zachary says the story of Hanukkah is the story of Jews and queer people today. You know, the little army beat the big army, and it was a miracle. You know, we are small but mighty, and no matter what you throw at us, we're not going away. Organizing Gelty Pleasures is the queer Jewish group JQ International. Founder and CEO Asher Gellis knows it's hard to think of celebrating Hanukkah, given the Israel-Gaza war, given the rise in anti-Semitism, given the increase in anti-LGBTQ legislation. But one of the most important things that we can do as a community is to make sure we don't stop living our lives, that we don't stop celebrating who we are, and that we create opportunities for our community to feel safe. Always, says Gellis, of kindling light against darkness. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Los Angeles. Okay, so if you use music streaming services like Spotify or Apple Music, then you already know this, but just in case, you have a chance to review your year in song. And this time of year, people receive Spotify Wrapped, a recap of their listening habits easily shared on social media. Spotify recently announced that it's laying off around 1,500 workers, but the beat goes on. Okay, now, I do not need Spotify to tell me that Beyonce is my favorite, but why are people so obsessed with sharing their results? We love it because it's irresistible. Brian Utsi is a Northwestern University professor who studies social networks and says Spotify rap satisfies two competing human desires. We really want to be part of a group, but at the same time, we want to be different from everybody. And this year, Spotify, which is an NPR financial partner, sorted users into groups like Vampires who prefer emotional, atmospheric music. She's got a song about a vampire. <laughs> or time travelers who listen to old songs again and again. <laughs> At the same time, users, this is your favorite, right? At the same time, users can feel special by being told they listen to their favorite artists way more than other people on Spotify. Other apps also allow you to show off your habits and accomplishments like Duolingo, which is a language learning platform that lets you share how many words you have learned and your learning style. That could be anything from polyglot pupil someone who studied so many languages at once, to a fiery phoenix, those who took a break and started learning again. The Junge. Nick Siever, an anthropologist at Tufts University, says it's all about putting an image of yourself out into the world. People like to identify themselves with the objects that they consume, with the things they listen to, with the things they watch, with the things they read. And so it's a sort of normal bit of human culture. 
Siva wrote a book about music recommender systems like Spotify and Pandora. They're part of a long history of using data about media consumption to reveal things that you might not have known about yourself, about your taste. Speaking of taste, our podcast, Up First, was on the Spotify charts for a total of 43 weeks this year. That put us in the top 1%. According to our Spotify wrapped. Thanks for listening. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is NPR. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Nine new charges brought against the president's son, Hunter Biden, allege he failed to pay more than a million dollars in taxes while living, quote, an extravagant lifestyle. It's Friday, December 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, there's growing concern over authoritarian and violent rhetoric by former President Donald Trump. The Atlantic dedicated a whole issue to the potential dangers of a second Trump term. We have to do whatever we can do while there's time to put out what we think will happen if Trump is elected again. Also this hour, the UK Prime Minister unveils a new plan to deport undocumented migrants to Rwanda. We must have a deterrent that says, if you come here illegally, you cannot stay and you will be removed. Plus, House lawmakers launch a formal inquiry into allegations of anti-Semitism at Harvard and MIT. Increasing clouds in the 40s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden's son, Hunter, has been indicted on federal tax charges by a federal grand jury in California. A special counsel is accusing Hunter Biden of failing to pay about $1.4 million in taxes. The younger Biden has already been indicted on separate federal gun charges in Delaware. NPR's Ryan Lucas says Hunter Biden's lawyer is criticizing the new indictment. His attorney, Abby Lowell, said in a statement last night that if Hunter's name was anything other than Biden, that none of these charges, not the gun charges or the new tax charges, would have been brought against him. Uh, Lowell accused the special counsel of, in essence, folding under Republican pressure to go after Hunter. NPR's Ryan Lucas reporting. There's a sentencing hearing today for the teenager who shot and killed classmates at Michigan's Oxford High School two years ago. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter reports Ethan Crumbly could spend life in prison. Ethan Crumbly was 15 when he killed four Oxford High students, wounded seven other people, then calmly surrendered so he could watch the results of the carnage. Prosecutors say those actions demand a sentence of life without parole. 
Judge Kwame Rowe says he doubts Crumbly could be rehabilitated, but Rowe could still hand down a sentence other than life, anywhere from a minimum of 25 years in prison to a maximum of 60. The sentencing hearing could help tip the scales of justice, with the judge likely hearing statements from survivors of the massacre, families of the victims, and those speaking on Crumbly's behalf. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. The Israeli military says it is still fighting Hamas militants in central and southern Gaza. Health authorities in Gaza say more than 17,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks since the Israel-Hamas war started. The Israeli Defense Forces say 91 Israeli soldiers have been killed in its ground offensive. A new report card ranks the countries of the world on their human rights practices, assigning each nation a letter grade. Finland got a high A. Iran came in last. NPR's Ari Daniels has more. Countries were scored on 25 human rights, from freedom of speech to the absence of political imprisonment and child labor. 60% of the countries failed. These are cases where improving human rights would probably have the biggest effect because there's the most room for improvement. Skipmark directs the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies at the University of Rhode Island and co-authored the report card. He says overall, the more democratic a country, the better its human rights. The U.S., however, violated various labor rights, women's rights, and civil and political rights. That's concerning, says Mark. Human rights in the U.S. will decline unless democratic institutions are strengthened. The U.S.'s grade on the report card, a D. Ari Daniel, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Harvard and MIT now face a congressional investigation over responses to allegations of anti-Semitism on campus. Earlier this week, presidents of both universities testified on that issue before the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. Committee members criticized the leaders' responses as inadequate. Allegations of anti-Semitism on campus have become a major issue since the war between Israel and Hamas began in October. Massachusetts is closing the Overflow Overflow Family Shelter site it set up three weeks ago in Boston. Twenty-five families who were on the wait list for the shelter system were staying overnight in conference rooms at the State Transportation Building. WBWAR's Gabriela Emanuel reports it's unclear where those families will stay now. Officials say they'll transition operations to a site in Quincy, but state data show the emergency beds there are already full. There are more than 100 families on the shelter waitlist, which was implemented almost a month ago. Since then, homeless advocates say some families have slept at Logan Airport in train stations in their cars and even outside. It's pretty bleak. Trish Appert runs the social services nonprofit Friendly House in Worcester. I don't think Friendly House has really ever been in a situation where we could do so little for families facing homelessness. A spokesperson for the state says an additional overflow site will open soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. It may soon cost less for some riders to take the T. The MBTA plans to consider changes to fares next month. The agency hopes to lower costs for students, seniors, and people with low incomes. T officials say cutting those fares will boost ridership. They say there are no plans to increase any fares. 
There will be a primary and special election early next year to fill a vacant state House seat. Peter Durant vacated the seat last month to join the state Senate. The district covers parts of Dudley, Southbridge, Southbridge, Charlton, and Spencer. A primary will be held February 6th. The general election will be March 5th. That's the same day as the state's presidential primary. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. The Patriots topped the Steelers 21-18 last night in Pittsburgh. It was New England's first win since late October. The Bruins fell to the Sabres 3-1 last night at the Garden. Tonight, the Celtics are back home to face the New York Knicks. Increasing clouds today, it'll be in the lower 40s. Partly cloudy overnight with a low around 30. Mostly cloudy tomorrow and in the lower 50s. Cloudy with a chance for showers on Sunday and a high in the lower 60s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation. Making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The center of the Israel-Hamas war is Gaza, where Israeli forces are searching for Hamas leaders and civilians have fled the Israeli bombardment. But the conflict includes tensions throughout the region, including in Jerusalem. It's the site of holy places for three major religions, a city that Israel claims as its capital and where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians live. For more, we turn to NPR's Kat Lonsdorf, who's in Tel Aviv. Kat, hello. Hey, Michelle. So you were reporting in Jerusalem last night in the Old City. Would you just tell us what you saw? Yeah, so it was the first night of Hanukkah, and a group of right-wing Israeli Jews had called for a march through the Muslim quarter of the Old City. Only about 50 people showed up. Media and Israeli police probably outnumbered the marchers. But some of the marchers were carrying inflammatory posters, which Israeli police then confiscated and even in some cases tore up. And then the police ended up blocking the route, which honestly is very unusual. I've covered these kind of marches before, and I haven't ever seen that. It it shows, I think, how concerned they are about the potential for violence breaking out right now. And the march ultimately fizzled out. So the old city, for people who've been there, if you haven't been there, I guess if you've been there, you'd know, it's this very small, ancient walled section of Jerusalem, really narrow streets. You just talk about what the mood there was last night. Yeah, it was it was very tense. And, you know, it has been for quite some time. We were walking through the Muslim quarter before that march was supposed to begin. And we saw Israeli Jews who live in the old city, particularly ones who have moved into the Muslim quarter, you know, lighting their Hanukkah menorahs in the street and singing and dancing. And they were often surrounded by Israeli police um, as Palestinians either just kind of looked on or honestly tried to ignore it. I talked to one 18-year-old. His name was Ilan Tolub. He was outside a Jewish religious school in the Muslim quarter with some friends singing and in front of a menorah, and here's what he told me through an interpreter. This city is not divided into quarters. It's one big Jewish quarter with different neighborhoods inside it, and that's the way it should be, and people should know it. We asked him then about what about the Palestinians? Does any of it belong to them? And he said just simply no. Okay, so let's turn to the situation in Gaza. We have been hearing that Israeli forces are pushing into central and southern Gaza. What can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, the Israeli military says that they're in Khan Yunis, which is the second largest city in Gaza. It's also where the home of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar is. They say they've encircled his home, although Sinwar's whereabouts are unknown. The military says that in the past few days, they've had some of the most intense fighting since this war began. And you know that intense fighting has led to mass displacement. Uh, people are fleeing to Rafah, which is a city in the south of Gaza near the border with Egypt. And even that's not safe. Uh, Israel says Hamas has continued to launch rockets from near where people are sleeping in tents in Rafah. And just yesterday, there were a few isolated strikes from Israel in Rafah. Rafah is incredibly overcrowded. Our producer there, Anas Baba, has been sending us photos and videos, and it's pretty astonishing. Streets just filled with people, cars and donkey carts piled high with whatever people could grab. You know, and this is straining what few resources there are there, food, water, medical care. Many aid groups are saying that the situation there is just dire. That is NPR's Kat Lomstorff in Tel Aviv. Kat, thank you. Thank you. This country is about to start an election year, and Donald Trump remains the leading Republican candidate. The Atlantic magazine marks that development with an entire issue devoted to Trump. 24 writers argue that if given a second chance in power, he would warp the U.S. Justice Department, prosecute his enemies, disempower experts, promote his own loyalists, and trample on the checks and balances at the heart of American government. The magazine editor is Jeffrey Goldberg. What we were thinking was that we have to do whatever we can do while there's time to put out in plain English what we think will happen if Trump is elected again. At the very least... I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror, and I want to be able to explain to my children and my grandchildren, we tried. We tried to tell people what was coming, and we failed, but we at least tried. Now, Jeffrey Goldberg edits a publication that's been around since 1857. In recent years, its journalists and opinion writers have made it one of the few magazines that are still relevant. The Atlantic is nonpartisan, and its writers include people from differing political views, who argue that Trump's Republican Party is off the rails. This is not just analysis of the previous four years of Donald Trump, the first term. We've been listening carefully to what Donald Trump and his people have been saying about what they want to do the next time. And I wanted to just highlight for our readers and for whoever comes and sees these stories, I want to highlight for them the consequences of these promises that he's been making. What are some of the promises? Well, for instance, the destruction of what you and I think of as an apolitical government bureaucratic class. So he's talked about uh, revamping the system, firing people who are insufficiently loyal to him and hiring loyalists, not experts, not the best people in their fields, but, but loyalists. Donald Trump has promised, among other things, to try the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, for treason. If he's given the power to, he will upend the way we pick generals in this country. Donald Trump does not want generals to be loyal to the Constitution. He wants generals to be loyal to him. How do we know this? Because he said it. There's also a kind of ideology that I guess people would have an opportunity to vote for if Trump proves to be the Republican nominee, which he is favored to do. And that's the idea that the experts don't know what they're talking about and that the president, as the elected official in the executive branch, should be able to do anything that he wants. Right. This devotion to the idea that expertise doesn't matter. What matters is a strong man. What matters is a, a authoritarian tendency. What matters is loyalty. 
wouldn't the checks and balances that exist in our system restrain Donald Trump? I particularly think of Senate confirmations for cabinet officials. You would imagine that senators, or a majority of them anyway, would want competent people to surround the president as they tried to do last time. Yeah, well, let's ask Mitt Romney what he thinks about that. You know, Romney, among others, Romney's getting out, of course, because he doesn't believe his colleagues in the current Republican caucus are willing or able to stand up to Donald Trump. He says they they understand what's going on, but they won't stand up to it. One of the articles in this issue focuses on the role of the media, which is, of course, touching on your very job. It's by George Packer, who's yeah. a distinguished journalist, and he writes that covering Trump brought CNN, The Times, The Post, The Atlantic, and other outlets, larger audiences, but much of that profitable coverage takes place in a glass booth that seals out a hostile or indifferent public. Are you worried that those media who are concerned about Trump will end up just talking to themselves again? Yes, of course, of course. And we have to be careful not to think of people who vote for Trump as deplorables, to borrow a word. I do worry about our ability to communicate across lines, geographic and ideological and dispositional lines, but it doesn't mean that we don't try. George Packer also writes that Trump, quote, corrupts the press by obsessing it and baiting it into abandoning independence for activism. Did you think about that very risk while putting together an issue that's entirely about Donald Trump? Yes. And I've said to our staff all along, I mean, I've been saying this for seven years, I said, look, we're not in the resistance, okay? We're journalists. To me, being in the resistance means that you cover up the flaws and foibles and weaknesses of the other side, right? Or other parties or other candidates. We don't do that. We'll cover Joe Biden's age. We'll cover foreign policy failures of the Biden administration. We'll cover whatever we have to cover. We are not in the resistance. We are just trying to use our eyes and ears to describe reality. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor of The Atlantic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Police have identified the suspected gunman in Wednesday's shooting at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and two of the three victims. This latest incident shook a city that experienced the deadliest shooting in modern U.S. history just six years ago. Yvette Fernandez from member station KNPR has this update. Students were not a target. Instead, police say the suspect targeted the teaching staff at UNLV. Two of the victims were professors at the university's business school. A third victim's identity is being withheld until next of kin are notified. A fourth shooting victim was a visiting professor being treated at a local hospital with life-threatening injuries. University Police Chief Adam Garcia said the suspect, Anthony Polito, exited Beam Hall about 10 minutes after the initial shots were fired. It was then that two plainclothes university officers confronted him and fired their weapons. These two detectives are heroes. They risk their lives in order to save countless others. Las Vegas Police Sheriff Kevin McMahill said they learned additional information following a search of Polito's residence in the Las Vegas suburb of Henderson Wednesday night. Importantly, there was a chair with an arrow pointing down to a document. That document was similar to a last will and testament. There was ammunition consistent with the same cartridge cases located at the scene, and there was a Taurus handgun box matching the handgun that he used. 
Police also learned the alleged shooter sent 22 letters to several university faculty at both UNLV and East Carolina University in North Carolina. University President Dr. Keith Whitfield said support is available through the community's resiliency center. That center was created following the October 1, 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas, which claimed the lives of 60 people and wounded hundreds. Whitfield says the school and the greater Las Vegas community will be impacted by this week's shooting. Incidents like these actually rock us to the bone. This is a day that we're not going to forget. It's a day that's marked in our history from now on. For NPR News, I'm Yvette Fernandez in Las Vegas. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, U.S. House lawmakers have announced they will formally investigate allegations of anti-Semitism at Harvard and MIT. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com and Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold and get a drink of water. I'm Elsa Chang, why Texans are pushing for federal standards that protect workers from the heat. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Clouds move in throughout the day today. We'll have a high in the low 40s. The clouds stick around tonight and it falls to around 30. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 50s. Sunday, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 60s and a good chance of rain beginning in the late afternoon. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From EBSCO, supporting open source technology and making open platforms possible for libraries of all sizes. Learn more at ebsco.com. From the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
The weather is getting colder, and the job market appears to be cooling off as well. We'll get a report this morning on just how many jobs employers added in November, and we'll also find out what happened to the unemployment rate. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with us once again to help us take the economic temperature. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Michelle. So a month ago, you told us that hiring had slowed in October. What do forecasters think happened in November? You know, the headline number is likely to be at least somewhat higher than the 150,000 jobs that were added in October. Uh, Keep in mind, you had about 30,000 auto workers who left the picket lines and went back to the assembly lines last month. Uh, We also saw an end to the Hollywood strike, so there were probably more people working on TV and movie sets in November. If you look past those strike-related shifts, though, uh, there are signs that what had been a really sizzling job market is cooling off a bit. Uh, There were fewer job openings, for example, at the end of October than there had been the month before. Still, economist Nick Bunker, who's with the Indeed Hiring Lab, says it doesn't look as if the job market's going to come to a crashing halt. The recent string of data that we've gotten are very encouraging for the prospects of a soft landing. We're seeing a lead market that's moderating in a relatively painless way. Ordinarily, when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates the way it has to get inflation under control, you would expect to see a spike in job losses. And so far, Michelle, that has not happened. Hmm, more to talk about there. But So what's happening with the unemployment rate? It's still very low. Uh, it was 3.9% in October. It's been under 4% now for 21 months in a row. Uh, unemployment did inch up a little bit. It was 3.4% back in April. Uh, and that's partly because more people have been coming off the sidelines and looking for work. And it's taking time for all of them to find jobs. You know, for a while, we had this really chaotic job market where lots of people were quitting and changing jobs. Employers were having to scramble to fill job openings. In recent months, Bunker says a lot of that has settled down. The labor market is just a calmer place than where it's been the last few years. People are more likely to stay in their job than they were last year or the year before that. There's just less churn. This also suggests that many employers are very reluctant to let go of the folks that they do have on payroll right now. So while employers might be a bit slower to hire new workers uh, than they had been, they're also very slow to reach for pink slips because they don't want to get caught shorthanded again. You know, when employers were scrambling to find workers, they often wound up paying much higher wages. Is this newfound calm in the job market cutting into those wage gains? Wage growth has definitely slowed down. Average wages in October were up 4.1% from a year ago. That's a smaller increase than we had been seeing when the job market was more overheated. But, you know, a lot of those earlier raises were gobbled up by high inflation. Uh, The good news is wages are now generally rising faster than prices, so workers are getting, getting a real boost in their buying power. We also got news this week that workers are getting more productive, maybe because uh, there's less turnover. And that's good because when workers are more productive, employers can afford to pay them more without putting upward pressure on prices. Hmm, That's really interesting. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thanks so much for explaining all this. You're welcome. It's Friday, which means it's time again for one of the final few story cores of this year. My name is Robert Gano. What's your relationship to me? We're brothers, unfortunately, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Brigano lives in New York. His older brother, Phil, lives near San Diego. They see each other once per year, and on one of those visits, the StoryCorps trailer was parked near Phil's home. Phil recently came back to remember the conversation they had there. My brother, Robbie, loved coming here, and our family had had an Airstream trailer. 
So taking Robbie to StoryCorps was a natural fit. What's your earliest memory, Rob? I rolled my Uncle Charlie's Dodge into the streetlight. Wait, what happened? Went down the drive. I jumped out of the car, and it went down the driveway. Into a telephone pole? Yes. (laughs) Robbie is what they call developmentally disabled. He knew he had limits, but he had a way of just melting your heart. (laughs) And do you remember uh, one time in Mom's station wagon? Yeah, I fell out. Yeah. And what were you doing, playing with the doors while the car was driving? No, the locks were defected. So you weren't playing with the door no. handle? I think they had trouble with the locks on that particular model <laughs> I car. I know you had trouble with the locks. <laughs> and then another time I bit a horse. No, you didn't bite a horse, Reb. I thought I did. <laughs> the story was you wanted to go up and pet the horse, and the man said, oh, that's okay. He can pet it. The horse won't bite. And Mom said, I'm not afraid of the horse biting my son. I'm afraid of what my son might do to the horse. <laughs> Besides these shenanigans, he ended up working at the Department of Public Works for 30 years, where he got to walk around the streets, picking up litter, cleaning, sweeping, and he got to know nearly every resident. He was often referred to as the real mayor by the people. In fact, he would go around our neighborhood to look in on our older neighbors, and he would say, well, who else is going to do it? He just has that sense of what's right. What's your happiest memory? My happiest memory is when Dad took me to learn how to swim. But my dad's a little excitable. <laughs> and what do you think that is, Rob? I think that's his nature. You're not Your nature, maybe, no, you know, no, doing the, things? That's his Rolling nature. Rolling cars into trees. And... I don't do that anymore. Oh, okay. I was listening to this recording with my wife, and she said, isn't it great to hear Robbie being Robbie again? Because he came down with COVID more than once, and his illness has really taken a toll on his sense of humor. He is not as effervescent as he used to be. We miss those things because he was always a glue that bound the family together. He is the gem of a guy, and we all help polish him. Anything else, Rob? I think that's about it. That's all? Yeah, and next year we could have stories about you. Brothers Rob and Phil Regano, their interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, I talk with Harvard professor Claudia Golden, who's in Sweden to receive the Nobel Prize in Economics. It's 829. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol on Tuesday, December 19th. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. WVUR supporters include MFA Boston, presenting Fashion by Sargent, the exhibition the Boston Globe calls unapologetically gorgeous. Closes January 15th. Tickets at MFA.org. And the home for little wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids, because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. 
and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N. Security Council is expected to vote today on a resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza amid the war between Israel and Hamas. Hunter Biden has been indicted on nine federal tax charges. Three of them are felonies. A federal grand jury in California accuses the president's son of failing to pay at least $1.4 million in taxes owed from tax years 2016 through 19. He's also accused of filing false returns for the 2018 tax year. If convicted, Hunter Biden faces a maximum of 17 years in prison. A judge in Texas says a woman who's 20 weeks pregnant can legally terminate her pregnancy. 31-year-old Kate Cox lives near Dallas. She sued the state, seeking a court-ordered abortion after her fetus was diagnosed with a terminal genetic abnormality. The state bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Her attorney is Mark Heron. She's grateful that um, the court system heard that she needs an exception under Texas law. Texas law is incredibly confusing, and and the doctor's um, hands have been tied, and so it's been incredibly frustrating. He was speaking to CNN. The state's attorney general says Cox's physician could still face civil and criminal penalties. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Harvard President Claudine Gay is apologizing for her remarks at a congressional hearing this week on allegations of campus anti-Semitism. In an interview with the Harvard student newspaper The Crimson, Gay said she was sorry about her statements. During the hearing, Gay said calling for genocide of Jews could violate campus policy, quote, depending on the context. She told the Crimson that she got caught up and should have said that calls for violence against Jewish students should not be tolerated at Harvard. We'll have more on this coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition. Governor Healy says talks are underway to discuss how to come up with the billions of dollars needed to overhaul the MBTA. Leaders with the transit agency say it needs $24.5 billion to get the system where it should be. The governor isn't being specific on where the state will get that money, but she told WBWAR's Radio Boston that the issue is being addressed. That's a subject of ongoing discussion um, with the legislature, with stakeholders on this. I think you know, I, I credit the number. Um, you know, there's a lot of thought that went into that. Um, but, you know, it's going to take uh, a lot of thinking about how to get there in terms of, of the kind of revenue that we need. Healy would not say if new taxes and fees will be considered or if money will be taken from the state's new surtax on high incomes. A large-scale light and sound art installation returns to Mount Auburn Cemetery this weekend after its popular debut a year ago. As WBUR's Andrea Shea reports, solstice is now considered a holiday tradition. Solstice attracted 8,300 bundled-up people to Mount Auburn Cemetery last year. The walkable contemplative experience was the largest event produced by the historic landmark. President and CEO Matthew Stevens says its immersive glowing displays inspired visitors leading up to the longest night of the year. Having this space as a portal to think and feel 
about their life and how it has changed over the last year and what they're thinking about for the year ahead was overwhelmingly welcomed. Solstice runs tomorrow night through December 21st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The Patriots beat the Steelers 21-18 last night in Pittsburgh. That improves the Pats' record to 3-10. They'll host the Kansas City Chiefs next weekend. The Bruins' three-game winning streak ended last night. They fell to the Buffalo Sabres 3-1 at the Garden. The Bees will host Arizona tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics take on the New York Knicks. It'll slowly grow overcast today. Highs will be in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight, and it'll be partly cloudy. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, but we warm up to highs in the low 50s. Another warm-up on Sunday to highs in the low 60s. It'll be mostly cloudy again, and showers are likely beginning in late afternoon. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The University of Pennsylvania's Board of Trustees gathered yesterday to discuss comments made by the school's president during a House hearing on campus anti-Semitism, comments that have set off a firestorm of criticism. Like other university presidents, Liz McGill faced questions about Her school's rules. A lawmaker asked if, quote, calling for the genocide of Jews would violate the university's code of conduct. McGill, along with the presidents of Harvard and MIT, answered in various ways that it depended on the context and whether the speech was connected with hostile action. Now, a congressional committee says they're going to investigate the universities. NPR's Tovia Smith is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Tovia. Good morning. Okay, so the pressure on these presidents seems to be escalating since this hearing. What's the latest? Well, the blowback has really just continued to intensify since they were grilled on whether students' calls for genocide would violate campus rules. And their answers ranged from maybe to long-winded lawyer-like dodges that prompted outrage from a broad array of very strange bedfellows, from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who was firing the questions, to Elon Musk, who called the answers shameful, and Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, who questioned the university president's ability to lead. Jonathan Greenblatt from the Anti-Defamation League was even more pointed. Here's what he said. It's time for new leadership. It's not just a failure of their fiduciary responsibility. It's an utter collapse of their moral responsibility. So, Tovia, some of the presidents have issued clarifications of their positions, but I take it that doesn't seem to be helping. Correct. Uh, Harvard's president reiterated that calls for genocide were vile and students who make threats against others will be held to account, but she stopped short of saying that those calls for genocide amount to such threats. Penn's president, Liz McGill, did go further, uh, maybe a little too late, but she's saying now that she's reconsidering Penn's policies. Here's how she put it. A call for genocide of Jewish people is threatening, deeply so. In my view, it would be harassment or intimidation. These policies need to be clarified and evaluated. We can and we will get this right. 
So I take it she's saying she's convening a group to do this. And Tovia, these are three pretty big institutions, and I imagine there's a range of opinions. But were you able to speak to anybody on these campuses to get their thoughts about all this? Yeah, there are some who say the presidents had it right the first time, being purists on campus free speech. And they're dismayed now to see the schools caving, as one put it, to the political or financial pressure. I'll also share another more nuanced take from Harvard professor Steven Pinker, who's a staunch advocate for free speech, but also critical of what he considers a hostile environment for many Jewish students. He does not think Harvard's president deserves to be fired, in part, he says, because removing her will not fix what he sees as a much more deep-rooted problem. Here's how he describes it. I mean, it's like firing the coach when your team isn't doing well. It kind of feels good. It's a response to a demand. It doesn't solve the problem. And Pinker's among the many who've accused universities of hypocrisy for cracking down on speech that offends the left, but allowing speech from the left that, for example, is making many Jewish students feel unsafe. And as we mentioned, Congress is now investigating these schools. What does that mean? Yeah, that House committee that held the hearings this week says it's now officially investigating schools' disciplinary policies, and it won't hesitate to subpoena documents if it needs to. And that's prompting complaints now that Congress is not also investigating Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian or anti-Arab hate on campus. NPR's Tovia Smith. Tovia, thank you. You bet. Here in the United States, some politicians want to stop undocumented immigrants with the border wall. In the United Kingdom, they want to deter people from arriving by saying they will be deported to Rwanda in East Africa. After a number of legal challenges, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is unveiling his latest legislation to try to make that happen. It will mean unequivocally that Rwanda is safe and there should be no more blocks to our ability to get people on planes and send them to Rwanda because that is critical. We must have a deterrent that says, if you come here illegally, you cannot stay and you will be removed. Madeline Sumption is studying the Prime Minister's plan. She is the director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Welcome to the program. Good morning. The Prime Minister made this statement while standing uh, with a sign that said, stop the boats. What's that mean? So the background to all of this is that over the last few years, people have started uh, coming to the UK without permission in small boats, basically rubber dinghies with about 50 people crammed onto each one across the channel from France. Um, And the numbers of people who have been doing that have uh, increased substantially to around 45,000 last year. And this has created uh, a lot of anxiety and the government is under a lot of pressure to stop people from arriving in this way that was never a thing in the past and has become um, quite dominant in, in British politics. So the idea of the policy is to try and create some kind of deterrent to stop people from wanting to come to the UK to claim asylum, because that's what the the main um, reason that people are coming here is to put in asylum claims, effectively applying for refugee status. And and the deterrent is you don't get to stay. You get sent to Rwanda. What What happens? You get put in a plane and you just have to live in Rwanda? Is that the deal? Yeah, so the idea is that people will... Um, be uh, be sent to Rwanda and Rwanda will process their asylum claim and give them status there and they would never be able to come back to the UK. I should clarify though that um, it's very unclear how many people would actually be sent. Um, there's, the government has been a little bit cagey about the, the precise numbers but it's quite possible that actually only a relatively small people, a small share of people will be sent back to Rwanda in which case um, it might be that most people who come across the channel and small boats do actually she still get to remain in the UK. Um, How would it then be a deterrent? 
Well, that's the big question. Um, and I think a, a lot of that there's a huge amount of uncertainty. I, I think probably it would be the case if a large share of people were sent to Rwanda, I think probably it would have some deterrent. One of the problems, though, is that actually some of the people who come across are not very well informed about what the policies even are. And research from other settings where governments have tried to deter asylum seekers has often found that, that these deterrent policies are not as effective as governments hope. So I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty about what the deterrent effect will be, if any, but it is, it is certainly very possible that, uh, that the policy won't work in the way the government hopes. While assuming that some people are sent to Rwanda, the UK Supreme Court, the top court, has already ruled that Rwanda is not safe for migrants to be sent there, but the government just says it's fine. Well, the government has passed legislation w declaring R Rwanda to be safe. Um, and so that will effectively prevent the courts from weighing in on it again. That is quite an unusual uh, move, and lawyers here say they've never seen anything like it. Madeline Sumption at Oxford University's Migration Observatory, thanks so much for the time. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report uses the 1983 classic holiday film Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd to explore questions about how people behave when they have more money. Increasing clouds and low 40s today, partly cloudy and around 30 tonight, mostly cloudy and low 50s tomorrow, still mostly cloudy on Sunday and in the low 60s. Showers are likely beginning in the late afternoon. It's 32 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. Boston-area electricians are celebrating a renovated training center in Dorchester. WBUR's Palomora tells us the new building is meant to give electricians the skills needed to transition to clean energy. Over a thousand students are taking classes in the renovated building. The center's five-year apprenticeship program includes work for contractors in the field. Lou Antonellis is the business manager at local IBUW 103. He says the renovation created new space for classes, such as how to install electric vehicle chargers. When it comes to clean, green electrical technology, that industry is exploding right now and it's constantly changing. So we're constantly adding and upgrading courses and curriculum to make sure that we're meeting the trends. He also says over the past four years of the program, women and people of color have made up 50% of the trainees. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. A new spot for pickleball is heading to Hyde Park. The Boston Pickle Club plans to open seven indoor courts in the neighborhood. The new venue will include memberships, rentals, and lessons. It's expected to open early next year. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This year's Nobel Prizes will be handed out this week in Stockholm, and Harvard professor Claudia Golden is there to receive her award in economics in recognition of her research that showed women still face large gaps in pay and levels of employment. And she joins us now. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Congratulations. As you're reflecting on this honor, are there times in your past that you're thinking about that led to this moment? Oh, there are many, many times. There are many moments when I've had questions that I wanted answers to and couldn't find the data. And I really am an economist detective. And it took detective work to a certain extent to unearth the information that you unearthed, right? Oh, it certainly did. It took in many ways belief that the data would exist. And when I have a question, I always think I have a question and somewhere there's information on it. And if I can unearth it somehow, then I can attempt to answer the question, Not never completely. What does your research show about why the gender wage gap persists? We are left with a gender gap in many different areas, and not just in earnings, but also in labor force participation. But let's realize that these gender gaps were once extraordinarily large, and they have been reduced in size over time. So men and women did very different things. They had different levels of education, and now they are far more similar. But gender gaps persist. And some of those differences, of course, are due to basic issues concerning bias and discrimination. But the larger amount is due to the fact that women are still disproportionately the caregivers. What changes do you hope this research will lead to in the workforce? If individuals, and they do, go to firms and say, you want me to work long hours, you're really going to have to pay me a tremendous amount more, then firms will sit back and say, well, how can we do things so that we don't have these very, very big demands on our workers so that they do have their vacations, so that they can be home with their kids at six at night and have dinner. So in fact, these changes or something that is part of the economic system. Pointing them out is simply saying that that's where we should look for these differences. What does it mean for your work to be recognized at the level of the Nobel Prizes? What this award has meant to me personally is a lot, but it also has been magnified many, 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 many times over by the fact that it means a lot to many other people. And of course, more than 50% of the world's population are women. There is a gender disparity in the Nobel Prizes themselves because they have been much more frequently awarded to men throughout history. Does that impact how you feel as you receive this award? Well, I also know that in my own field of economics, if I look at individuals who are coming on board and have been on board for some time, but are younger than I am, there are far more women. And not only are they an extraordinary group, but they are now more mothers. I have received the Nobel this year, but in the coming decade or two, there will be many, many women and they will 
be awarded this surrounded by their families and their children. Harvard professor Claudia Golden is the recipient of the 2023 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement that he's running for an unprecedented fifth term next spring. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR, here to say thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our year-end fundraiser. We are blown away by your support, and we promise that was the last fundraiser this year. If you haven't had a chance to give yet and you'd still like to, please go to WBUR.org and click on the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The latest Labor Department data show the U.S. added nearly 200,000 new jobs in November, due in part to the return of auto workers after a nationwide strike. President Biden's son, Hunter, faces nine new federal charges as part of a Justice Department investigation into his taxes. And U.S. House lawmakers plan to launch a formal investigation into allegations of anti-Semitism at Harvard and MIT. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Registration open for winter classes at newartcenter.org. Low 40s today under skies that'll grow increasingly overcast around 30 tonight and it'll be partly cloudy. Low 50s tomorrow and mostly cloudy. Low 60s on Sunday under mostly cloudy skies that'll likely give way to showers in the late afternoon. It's 32 degrees in Boston. There's news hiring was slightly stronger than expected in the month gone by and the unemployment rate has fallen. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering holiday postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. There's news that just under 200,000 more people were on payrolls in November. That is higher than expected, even when accounting for auto workers returning after the strike. The unemployment rate moved in the right direction, falling from 3.9 to 3.7 percent now. For more, let's check in with economist Julia Coronado. She's founder and president of Macro Policy Perspectives. Julia, from the perspective of people looking for work, how do you read this? Well, this is a great report for people looking for work. There's lots of jobs still available. People actually kept returning to the labor force looking for work, and wage growth was relatively firm, so still a solid labor market. Where were the gains? Who was getting jobs? The gains are pretty concentrated in healthcare and education, state and local governments, leisure and hospitality. Manufacturing saw a big gain, but part of that was returning strikers. Absent that, it probably would have seen small job losses. So um, not as broad based as earlier in the year, but still healthy numbers. 
All right, so yay for real people. But if you're dying for interest rates to start falling soon, does this strength delay that a little bit? It does. Uh, Markets had moved towards hoping or pricing a rate cut as early as the first quarter of the year. This probably pushes it back towards closer to the middle of the year before the Fed is confident enough to cut interest rates. Thanks so much, Julia. Economist Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Again, the strength here could delay any lowering of interest rates in the new year, but moves in the market this morning are not wild in reaction. The 10-year interest rate is up slightly, 4.22%. Dow and S&P futures are both down about two-tenths of a percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on. That's why Schwab has financial consultants ready to serve their clients, plus professional answers and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by This Is Uncomfortable, hosted by Rima Crace from Marketplace. Listen as we talk about life and how money messes with it. Listen to the new mini-season now. This month for our Econ Extra Credit Project, we're learning about inequality, insider trading, and cornering markets from not a documentary but a holiday comedy from 1993. It's Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd in which two tycoons make a bet about what happens if you take away the privilege of an entitled twit versus what happens if you give those privileges to a street hustler. The movie makes the point that wealth can turn people into jerks. There is real-world research on that point. Paul Piff is a professor of psychological science at the University of California, Irvine. Professor, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here. You and I here have talked before about your famous rigged Monopoly game study that you have tested far and wide. Game of Monopoly contestants know the game is completely rigged in favor of one of them after a a coin flip. But the winners think it's not the coin flip, but their own awesomeness that leads to success in the game. But lesser known is this other thing that you've done. It was your analysis of cars endangering pedestrians. How did you set that up? We just were interested in whether drivers of different kinds of cars, drivers from different kinds of wealth backgrounds, would behave differently in terms of abiding by California vehicle code. Are they more or less likely to break the law? One of the versions of those studies, we actually posed a pedestrian at a crosswalk and secretly monitored whether drivers would stop for that pedestrian. What we found is that as the expensiveness of the car that you drove increased, the less likely you were to stop for the pedestrian. So the more likely you were to break the law. What conclusions do you reach from seeing that data? Yes, I think it's hard to draw clear conclusions from any single study. But at this point, we've got dozens of different studies looking at different facets of behavior that tell us that the more wealth you have, the less attentive to other people you become. And so what I think we're measuring in that car study may simply just be that if you come from greater means, if you have more wealth, you're just a little more focused on your own goals and interests, your own needs, what you yourself want to do, and you're a little less attentive 
to other people around you. I mean, but this is an important point that you're making, which is that this one study grabbed our attention, but it fits into a matrix of other data suggesting a similar conclusions. It'd be one thing to make these kinds of general descriptions that wealthy people are just like that. And after all, you have to be a person who has those kinds of values to become wealthy in the first place, right? You could make that argument that it's self-interested people that become wealthy and accrue wealth in the first place. But we've run experiments in the lab where we actually like the trading places experiment. We actually bring rich and poor people into the lab and manipulate them into feeling like they're somewhat wealthier or somewhat less well-off than someone else. And even that very temporary fleeting experience of relative advantage or relative disadvantage makes people actually shift in their social values and shift in the kinds of behaviors they exhibit toward other people, making even poor people feel temporarily richer, temporarily more advantaged than someone else actually shifts them into more greedy patterns of behavior. Paul Piff, professor of psychological science, University of California, Irvine. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. We'll also discuss the problem of addressing inequality when people tend to downplay the role of luck in their success. That's clickable on the Marketplace homepage. And you're invited to our Econ Extra Credit newsletter full of, we hope, teachable moments drawn from movies. Sign up free at marketplace.org slash newsletters. Also note that Trading Places is not for everyone. What you may have seen on TV in the old days may not have had the offensive language and nudity that are in the uncut versions that stream now. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Dylan Mietnan. Our engineers are Jessen Dooler and Brian Allison. In New York, I'm David Brunkach. It's Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. It'll grow overcast today and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s, mostly cloudy tonight and around 30, low 50s tomorrow and mostly cloudy, still cloudy on Sunday in the low 60s. There's a good chance of late afternoon showers. It's 33 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is next. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Carbon removal startups want to offset emissions from parts of the economy that are hard to decarbonize, like aviation. Can we trust them? It is essential for startups to be enthusiastic about their prospects. I'm always kind of advocating for a little bit of, like, sobriety, a little bit less enthusiasm. Next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.